The most powerful forms of deception rely more on emotional manipulation and misdirection than outright lies. That's what I've observed in nearly a year of research into the murky world of medical misinformation. I'd previously thought of medical misinformation as pseudoscience promoted by those selling alternative remedies, bad diets, and the like. That still exists, but it's now commingled with a larger body of politically motivated misinformation. That was journalist Faye Flam reading from her first opinion essay, Misinformation Often Isn't Outright Lies. It's more subtle than that. I'll bring you our conversation after a word about STAT's upcoming Breakthrough Science Summit. On March 31st, join STAT reporters in New York City, either live or virtually, as they host the STAT Breakthrough Science Summit. At this all-day program, you'll hear from leading executives, researchers, and investors who are developing the next big innovations in the life sciences. As a thank you for being a First Opinion podcast listener, get 10% off your ticket when you use the code POD, that's P-O-D, all uppercase, at checkout. Visit statnews.com summit to learn more. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, Stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. The podcast is on a mini break right now until weekly episodes resume on March 16th but we're not leaving you empty-eared. This is one of two mini-episodes we've released during the break. It's great to talk with you, Faye. Thank you. It's good to talk with you, Pat. You know, it sounds like you are, or at least were, focused on the concept of misinformation almost full-time through a fellowship you earned through the Society for Professional Journalists and with your podcast, Follow the Science, that grew out of it. What drew you to study the concept of, quote, misinformation? Well, I was actually reporting almost full-time on the science of the pandemic for Bloomberg. I had been doing a science column for them. And once the pandemic started to really loom as a big story in late January, early February of 2020, I picked that up as really the biggest science and medical story of our time. And after a few months of covering the science, I proposed a fellowship, and I felt like medical misinformation was just this um, important understudied problem that people sort of thought they knew what it was when they saw it, but that it's a lot more complicated than people think. There, There's a lot of value judgment and politics going into it, that it had taken on a whole new dimension with the pandemic. You know, it sounds like this work has changed your thinking on what misinformation is. Can you explain that? Well, I had thought about it as, you know, pseudoscience, as, uh, you know, alternative medicine, homeopathy, things that were being promoted by somebody that wanted to make money. But with the pandemic, it seemed like there was a lot of confusion about what actually constituted misinformation. And I have done a little bit of research 
on the whole idea of fake news and misinformation that started back in 2016 when I was at a meeting of computer scientists and social scientists. They started a group called Fake News where they were trying to understand some of the problems with misinformation that were affecting our political decisions at the time. And so I drew on those people and what I had learned from them to, to look at medical misinformation in the pandemic. And it I think that the political side of things has played a much bigger role. I think that people um, do a lot of what we saw Donald Trump do when he people were talking about the fake news phenomenon and he started pointing to any story he didn't like and saying, well, that's fake news, that's fake news. And so I think that we see a certain amount of that with people pointing the finger at things they disagree with and calling it misinformation. You know, that's the way it's, I've come to see it. Anytime people disagree with something, they do exactly what you said, point to it and say, well, that's fake. And having no, absolutely nothing, you know, to stand on, but it's such an easy way to label something, especially when it's being labeled that way from the highest office in the country. Yes. And I think that with science, it gets particularly complicated because science doesn't really lend itself to, you know, sets of facts. There are some parts of very basic science that are factual, but something like the epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 that we're learning as we go along is, you know, it, there's a scientific process there. It, it, it isn't, it isn't um, what I'd call well-established science. With science, it's a little harder to define it because we're talking about applying fairly unscientific terms like safety, you know, is the vaccine safe? Well, that depends. Is it safe to go to the grocery store right now without a mask? Well, that depends on how safe you want to be. Or where you live. Or where you live and a million other factors. But safe is, um, you know, it's a relative term. I mean, you could, you'd have to compare it to something. Is it safer than during a typical flu season, you know? Is it safer than something else? But to just say, is this safe or is that safe? is not really a well-defined scientific factual type question. So had this term been around years ago, would the Pope have been saying, Galileo, fake news, um, Jenner, fake news, smallpox, yes. no. <laughs> Mis yes, misinformation, misinformation. Yeah, it was just something that people didn't want to hear at the time. And so, yeah, I think people... And people do talk about information being dangerous right now. You know, anything that sort of questions vaccines. If somebody wants to talk about whether there are cases of myocarditis associated with a vaccine in certain age groups, and that's very rare, but, you know, do you talk about it? Should you talk about it? It's real. It's rare. Some people will say, don't talk about it. It's dangerous. Well, also, you know, the whole thing in science you know, should you talk about it before the facts are in? But the facts are never always in. I'm about to publish uh, first opinion this afternoon about long COVID in kids, which was a concern, but it was based on studies that had no control groups. And now that the control, now that there are studies with control groups, it almost looks as though it's pandemic-related problems, not infection-related problems which is interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the ways that, um, that we science journalists can evaluate information from scientists is whether they express the correct amount of uncertainty, whether they tell you, yeah, we, 
we're kind of half guessing with this because we don't have any controls, but this is helping us to design the right kind of trial so we can get better information. But we think given what we have, it's a smart idea to whatever they think, you know, make sure everybody over 80 gets monoclonal antibodies or, you know, ramp up the uh, production of Paxlovid or have kids of a certain age wear a mask in school. You know, so we are making decisions based on partial knowledge. And I think the people who are being honest are the ones that will tell you how partial that knowledge is. Do you have a really good example, a glaring example of misinformation that, you know, you think I'm going to tell you this is mis misinformation and everybody would see that. Well, I guess one of the recent examples that's gotten a lot of attention was Robert Malone on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I watched that very carefully because I wanted to write something about it. It was a pretty long podcast episode. And, you know, Malone is a scientist. And so you know, he kind of defies the uh, the advice to listen to scientists because he is a scientist, but he said a lot of deceptive things that um, I would say are, um, were very emotionally manipulative. He said, he talked about the fact that after the vaccine, some women have reported missing a period, having an irregular menstrual cycle. Um, and I think that people are trying to study that. And then he sort of threw in, well, it's causing premature menopause. And that's pretty scary. You know, that's suggesting that young women may be permanently um, infertile and that it's having a pretty profound permanent effect. I think mean, that was absolutely out of left field. I have looked at that. I've written about that. I have not heard anybody suggest that the vaccines are causing young women to go through premature menopause. So let's let's back up here for just a second. So Joe, the uh, what's it called? The um, Joe Rogan Experience. It's a podcast, a very popular podcast on Spotify. The most popular one. I was looking at it as an example of a lot of the things I've been studying, you know, in the way that people who have a science background can kind of cleverly create doubt and confusion without actually stating things clearly enough to be fact-checked. It's partly problematic because Malone is, or at least was, a scientist and a scientific researcher. He did early work in the 1980s and 1990s on messenger RNA, which is what's being used for two of the most widely used vaccines. You know, it sounds like he's got a foot in both camps, the science camp and the misinformation camp. How does that how does that play to expressing misinformation? Well, one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that people can make fairly significant technical contributions to science without necessarily having any wisdom about the big picture. So, he, <laughs> you know, and we see that with Nobel Prize winners. Um, we saw that with uh, Carrie Mullis, who won a Nobel Prize for uh, PCR technology and has spread a lot of misinformation about HIV, telling people it doesn't cause AIDS. Um, and so, you know, he did make an important contribution. There have been other Nobel Prize winners that have said things that were uh, not very well thought out, didn't turn out to be true. So, you know, Malone did make an important contribution to understanding the biology of messenger RNA. And yet, you know, he's talking about vaccine safety and the FDA and all kinds of things It's that I don't think he has the authority to speak about with He's very definitive about what he says. He also 
played up ivermectin, which has been through many trials, many trials. And there are also mechanistic reasons that ivermectin is unlikely to work. I did one of my podcast episodes about ivermectin because it is, it maybe it is the well, most well-known, um, well-known drug around which misinformation just sort of swirls. It's an anti-parasitic drug. Is that right? Yes. And it actually is not uh, just a horse dewormer. It's used in humans. It's actually uh, a very important anti-parasitic drug. It uh, prevents people from getting some terrible diseases, including something called river blindness. So it's really a wonder drug for parasites. But I, you know, I did a podcast episode with Derek Lowe, who's a medicinal chemist, and he talked about the fact that the way it seems to work in a test tube against SARS-CoV-2 is just to to kill everything, you know, including the cells. <laughs> that you'd have to give it in a dose that was toxic to make it kill SARS-CoV-2. So the low doses that you'd use for an antiparasitic agent just are are unlikely to do anything. But it's a, ivermectin is kind of a vampiric whack-a-mole because um, you. You know, one study says it doesn't work and it pops up again in, you know, this chat channel and that chat channel and and people just won't let it die. They won't. But, but you know, before the pandemic, we saw that with things like acupuncture being the cure for all kinds of ailments. We saw that with homeopathy. People will come up with things. There are journals that will publish things. It seems like every year there are new trends in alternative treatments. You know, the, the kind of stereotype of scientists is that they're careful people. Um, but I guess scientists are just people. Um, so how do, you, how do you go from being a scientist to being a spreader of misinformation? Is that, that must be a weird path. It is a weird path. You know, I've also written about a guy named Peter Duesberg, who is, um, was a, a fairly prominent virologist who also went off into the, um, the, the same place Carrie Mullis went in trying to convince people that HIV did not cause AIDS. And some of it is that scientists can get very wedded to a position. It can be a minority position that they defend and then they just won't let it go. So there was a time when people were debating whether HIV was the right virus, that it, whether they had the one that, that actually caused AIDS. And the people that thought it didn't some of them said, okay, we were wrong. HIV is the right one. Hmm. And I think that there were a few others that hung on. You know, you wrote that listeners to Rogan's podcast with um, Robert Malone might have been, quote, led to think they were seeing science's brightest star. But then when you were participating in, um, in a panel or a press conference hosted by Harvard Medical School and the University of Massachusetts Medical School and other collaborators, you asked folks participating what they thought of Malone, and the response was, and I'm quoting here, blank looks and some hurried Google searching. Yes. Um, so he's, you know, it sounds like he, maybe he's a star in one realm and a dim bulb in another. Um, I think that he, he, he made a claim which would make him a huge star if it were true, which is that he invented the mRNA technology that's used for these vaccines. and the you know the reality is that he has been written up as someone uh, who made a contribution with to some of the basic science that was done in the 1980s and, and early 90s but that he's one of many many people whose work contributed to this 
Um, yeah, he's really not well known among the 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 people who are the players in vaccine safety and vaccine design and vaccine testing. How do people that aren't scientists or science journalists or people who have their head in this all the time, is there any way for them to figure out if they're hearing misinformation? Yeah, I think there are a couple of ways. And one is to stick with news sources that are um, accountable. You know, I've talked about this before that um, I wrote for Science Magazine for a long time and the Philadelphia Inquirer for a long time that and and now Bloomberg for quite a while that uh, we're held accountable for the information we put out there. So if a scientist calls me and says, you know, you got some things wrong, I'll listen and I'll fix what I got wrong and I'll maybe write a follow-up if there's enough that it goes beyond just a correction. We're, we're accountable to the public. Um, we, people count on us for uh, reliable information. We, we need subscriptions. So there's, we're motivated to get things right. But if you're going to be getting your news from social media and sources where you don't really know whether they're, they're working for that a, a, a credible um, publication that's accountable, then you could easily get misinformed if you look at just you know random people's YouTube, uh, you know YouTube videos. So I think looking for uh, people who are accountable, uh, accountable journalists that um, you know, unfortunately sometimes you have to pay. You have to go past a paywall uh, to to get to that information. Not always though. We're familiar with that. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes. And people sort of like to see stuff on social media. And it, and sometimes the more outlandish things on social media are what the algorithms love the most and actually get pushed to the top. So social media actually can be a force for amplifying misinformation. But you say that um, even so, that fact checkers for social media or anything else when it comes to science really don't work very well. How so? Well, first of all, I think there are, there are a couple of different ways that uh, people can be employed as fact checkers. I mean, people can have a fact checking column, which is sort of like a, you know, the, the old skeptics column. And then you have sort of what I consider the worst case scenario where Facebook hires fact checkers. You don't know who they are. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know what, why they think something is misinformation. It just goes away. It just gets banned. And so there's no transparency there. And we, we the, the uh, consumers of news, have no idea whether that has to do with the, the bias that those fact checkers have or the bias that their bosses have, that they just don't want information about certain things, or whether there's a real uh, factual um, basis for their pulling things down. You also mentioned crowdsourcing. How would that work when it comes to trying to get things right? Yeah, so I learned some fascinating things from some of the people that I met through this fake news study group. And a couple of them were social scientists looking specifically at misinformation on social media and how the algorithms, social media algorithms, elevate whatever gets engagement, what gets in engagement is often um, what stands out because it's outrageous and unlikely to be true. And the uh, and they, there are a lot of tricky things, bots and things on there that can make it look like something is really popular when it isn't. So there's a lot of deception that goes on in social media. Um, and I, the, 
there were a couple of social scientists who did some amazing studies where they found that they could they compared crowdsourcing to fact checking and found that the crowdsource when they had a, uh, ten or twelve people look at accuracy and and make a guess that they did as well as fact checkers did when you compared them with other fact checkers. So the uh, and so you know uh, my discussion with them led to why don't we why why doesn't somebody set up a social media platform where we used that estimate of accuracy um, to determine what the algorithms would elevate. And, you know, the reason is it wouldn't be as profitable. You wouldn't get the engagement. You wouldn't get what the social media people want, which is to get people kind of glued to it and sharing lots of stuff. So, but it, but it's doable. <laughs> and we've, we've seen how receptive to that kind of information Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are to changing their algorithms and, and getting input from outside sources. Not very. Yes. They would rather just tell you, oh, we're fact-checking things. And the other problem with fact-checking is that they can only fact-check a tiny fraction of what is being shared on there. So people might get the wrong impression that what they're seeing has been fact-checked and is more reliable when, you know, fact-checking one-tenth of one percent of everything on there um, isn't going to change the amount of misinformation going around on Twitter and Facebook. Has your work on misinformation taken you to places physically, mentally, emotionally that you hadn't expected to visit? <laughs> Probably emotionally and um, and mentally, I suppose I you know it has helped me to think more deeply about being a science reporter and about how to make sure that that people get the complete picture of things and why people are influenced so much by. I think, um, news that's dishonestly reported or scientists who are not necessarily lying, but deluding themselves. I mean, I think a lot of times people are accused of lying or we get obsessed with this idea of lying. But I think a lot of times people who are the worst misinformers are ones who are, are convinced of everything they say. Do you think that podcasts like yours, Follow the Science, or the First Opinion podcast for that matter, can do anything to counteract misinformation, or are we all just singing to the choir? No, I think that that um, we can do a lot, and I think addressing these things. I think it's better to talk about them than not to talk about them. Mm. You know, if people are, if enough people are talking about ivermectin, then I think it is important to to look at it in different ways and not just yell and scream and say that's misinformation, but take it apart and and respect the other side. Say, you know, I understand why you would want this to work. But, and I, I understand why you would be convinced by this person who's pointing to clinical trials. But, you know, here's somebody who's looked at other clinical trials that don't work. And here's somebody who's looked at mechanisms. And here's, you know, here's another way of looking at it. Before I was covering the pandemic, I talked a lot about um, global warming in my columns. And, um, you know, I would get questions from readers who were skeptical about global warming. And sometimes I would use those as the basis of another column because they were often reasonable questions and that they hadn't been answered in a way that was really satisfying to people. And I found those people were not unreasonable that they, when they heard the answers, they said, oh, okay. You know, so I think people, people can change their minds. People are curious. You know, if you, if you can grasp that curiosity that people have and say, well, let's investigate this, then it, it starts to go beyond just blind trust and people will actually follow the science in the way I meant it in my podcast, which is 
follow the progress of science, follow where scientists are going, follow what they're learning. And so when you said follow the science how you meant it, are there people interpreting follow the science in a different way? Yes, I was just quoted in a Washington Post article about how follow the science has become this political term that it, it that it's being used in sort of a pejorative sense by conservatives to imply that um, I think that that people more on the political left are deluded about how much science is behind their opinions. And so it had become politicized. I knew that when I took that on as the name of the podcast, but I still thought it could be, it was a catchy phrase and it could be used, it could be seen in different ways and used um, the way I meant it. And I do also explore politics and science and try to sort things out instead of taking sides. Given that the pandemic seems to have brought this idea of misinformation or fake news kind of to a head. Is it only going to get worse once the pandemic has receded? Are we, is, is that this kind of open the floodgates to that and this is going to be a really big and persistent problem? Or do you think like the pandemic, it will maybe fade? Well, I hope that, that the pandemic, it, I mean, it made it such a serious issue because people are foregoing vaccines that would save their lives and people are actually dying because they didn't get vaccinated. So it, it, I think the consequences of misinformation are so enormous for people in this pandemic that I think it's focused attention on the problem and I think will help people. Um, a lot has, is being learned about it. I, I think I learned about it. A lot of the people I've interviewed for my podcast have been focused on it and learned about it. And I hope that some of what they learned will uh, you know, follow through when we have other kinds of mis medical misinformation, when people are promoting fake cancer cures or something else, uh, you know, a, a weird diet that isn't good for people, that, that maybe some of what we learned about medical misinformation during the pandemic will, will help uh, experts and journalists to think differently about misinformation. Well, we'll have to check that out in a year or so. We'll come back and see where we are with medical information. Faith, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. If you've missed our regular weekly episodes, don't worry. We start back up with them on March 16th. As always, the podcast is produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.